Welcome to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring tech legend Jay Gunkelman. He is the man who has read well over a half a million brain scans. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience NeuroGuide workshops in Madeira Beach, Florida, led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen NG hyphen workshops. Earn up to 16 CEU hours now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen NG hyphen workshops. MindMedia, get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from MindMedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit MindMedia.com now. Join us at the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University Center for Collaborative Brain Research. It's featuring speaker Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Our Love and Loss. If you want to get more information regarding registration, contact Gwen Hoarter. She's at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at bradley.edu or call her at 309-677-3900. If you want more information regarding programming, you can contact Dr. Lori Russell Chapin herself at 309-677-3186 or email LAR at bradley.edu. Dr. Lori Jansen's Dr. Lori Russell, the NeuroNoodle podcast. Somebody invited a guest, Dr. Lori. Who who is this person? This is my show and tell. <laughs> Do you have a... Uh, Something going on in Peoria, like a really big brain summit. Or... We have a super brain summit coming up again. And thank you so much for NeuroNoodle for being one of our sponsors. I really appreciate that. Oh, um, absolutely. This is the seventh annual super brain summit. It's the 31st annual alumni award uh, luncheon, or and it's going to be a luncheon this year. And um, I'm thrilled to have Dr. O'Connor going to be our speaker for the day. She has a best-selling book called The Heat, The Grieving Brain, and she's going to tell us all about that at the workshop. Um, I read the book. I haven't told you this, I don't think. I read the book from front to cover, front cover to end. I loved it. If you could love this topic, I love this book. <laughs> um, it was really well done. Thank you so much for all the great illustrations and observations and pieces of research. So um, when you come see us at the Super Brain Summit, you can join us live video streaming. So anybody in the world can join us and hear this lovely person. Um, you can join us in person. Dr. Jansen, do you get to ch come join us? I will. That's, uh, we can remind folks it's, what is it, April 28th, Friday, at the end of April. Yes. At Bradley. Beautiful building. Boy, you know, I I, I went there back in the day, uh, early 90s, and uh, came back for the Brain Summit the last couple of years. There's some really beautiful um, uh, developments there as far as the new buildings and the 
facilities there are fantastic. The audio, like I'm a mu musician, so I'm always looking at the the uh, projector screens and the the microphones and the the audio uh, equipment, and it's a fantastic uh, venue. So, a uh, great place to see a, a speaker for sure. I'm so glad you're coming join us, Laura. I think that's wonderful. So mm -hmm. people could come in person. We love it. Um, and then we are going to be recording it. And so they can do that after. For, I think in about three weeks, we have to do all the closed caption pieces first. But then they can come and, and purchase it and watch it for, I think, six weeks, I think. And um, so they can do it that way, too, just in case. So I'm trying to hit everybody because... I think everybody's been grieving specifically for the last three years. So when I oh. saw you, um, it was like, yes. And I was so grateful that you were willing to come to Peoria. So that's my thing. There we okay. go. Okay. All right. So what our whistle, Dr. Let me make sure I get this right. Der Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. Is that it? That's uh, it. And you can call me Mary Frances. <laughs> Mary Frances. All right. Going forward, Mary Frances. Grieving brain, how do you get going on that? What state of mind do you have to be in to say, you know what, I'm going to write about uh, grieving? <laughs> well, I've actually been studying the neurobiology of grief for over 20 years now. And, you know, I think the brain is just fascinating. And my experience has been that it really is there to try and help us understand what happens when a loved one dies. But it's also interesting. There are things it does sometimes to get in our way. And so thinking about grief from the perspective of the brain, it's not the most obvious way to think about it, but it can help us to understand the why and the how of grief, which is a little different than just knowing what grief is like. Uh, so, you know, this book came about because I realized that although I'm doing research studies every day and talking with colleagues doing grief research, that that information wasn't really getting out to the people who could use it. Um, so, you know, when you sit on, uh, sit next to someone on the plane and you get into a conversation and you realize, gosh, no one's actually getting to use this information. And so writing the book was really trying to put it into the hands of people who may have experienced grief or may know someone who's going through grief um, to give them a better sense of what's happening and, and what helps and, and maybe what isn't so helpful. Connecting the dots here on grief, is it like depression? Is it the executive functioning of the brain, the front front left? I'm getting ahead of my skis here because there's three doctors in MBA here. But what what is going on with grief? Can somebody uh, tell me what that is like I'm a 10-year-old? <laughs> I think that one of the best ways to think about grief you have to remember that you can't really think about grief without first thinking about love. And so when we bond with someone, with our one and only, we know that there are changes in the brain that happen because you loved this person and they loved you. The way that the proteins around certain genes are folded, they're folded differently after you bond with them. And what's amazing is that that means you become we, right? You're no longer you and me, but your brain has really encoded the fact that that you are a, a, a dynamic unit, that you function together in the world. Unfortunately, what that means is when you're separated from this person, when this person dies, 
then the brain has to understand how do I function in the world with the amputation of part of we. And that takes a long time. You can think of grieving as a form of learning, really. And that's part of, I think, why it helps to take a neuroscience perspective, because that learning is happening in the brain and and things can help learning and things can make learning harder. Um, and so we have a whole lot of different kinds of data studies that we'll be talking about during the Super Brain Summit. So I'm so excited. <laughs> you know, I, so, I think so. I told you that um, we also teach a grief class, grief and loss class in the graduate curricula. And um, one of the things we're saying, though, it's not just the loss of a de death from a loved one. We're talking loss of a pet. Of, of, you had to move from one part of the world to another. Um, I mean, the losses, it encompasses us. So we need to understand how we deal with that. And so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that. Absolutely. You know, when you bond with someone, that someone isn't always a person, right? I think that the bond that we have with a dog or a cat can be just as strong. I mean, it's still your one and only, right? And that's how the brain understands it. And then, of course, the way that that separation and loss happens. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Can also come through a variety of, of causes. It can be the death of a loved one, but it can be a divorce. It can be a breakup, even sort of the empty nest. You know, your kids move away. It's not that they're gone, but it's certainly very different. And I think a lot of people experience grief in that scene, in that uh, situation. But here's the interesting thing. So if you think about the idea that when we have the loss of someone, that is a loss of part of ourself. So even the language we use. So for example, I use the word daughter to describe myself, right? That makes sense. I'm a daughter. But that word, it actually implies two people in the world, doesn't it? And the word spouse implies two people. The word best friend implies to people or colleague, right? Or teacher. And so when you think about it that way, then the losses of a variety of different people, it means that the way I function in the world is changed because I'm not the same as I was before when I was able to function with this other person. And then you can start to see how the brain also recognizes grief when we lose other kinds of functions. So if I were to retire, for example, being a professor is a big part of how I function in the world. And my brain would recognize that's loss, right? I've lost a part of how I am. Uh, loss of health, right? Loss of hearing. Um, moving across the country, as you said, Laurie. I think these are also losses that the brain can understand in a similar way. Is it the same thing as like a, a routine? You're in a routine and you break that routine for like some people, they have to, I don't want to say obs obsessive compulsive, but you have to, you know, laundry is on a Wednesday. I'm going to, and then you, 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 you break from that. And then there, 
there's a loss. Is it something similar like that? You know, there are many things that we end up learning when we're grieving and those happen on lots of different levels. And so habits is actually a big part of it, right? So you keep picking up the phone to text the person and then you realize, oh gosh, I can't do that anymore. Or you're at the grocery store and you're buying soy milk. And then you realize, oh, you know, my daughter was lactose intolerant, but I don't need to buy soy milk anymore, right? And so all of those habits that we sort of have to confront, they teach us about the reality that life is different now. But there's other kinds of learning as well. Um, there's learning about who am I now, just like I was describing before. For example, how how is how am I a widow? Is that how is that different from being a married person or Am I a parent if my child has died? What, what does that mean about who I am and what I do that's meaningful? And then another piece of it is often, how am I going to understand my future? So let's say you plan to retire with this person and they've died. Now, suddenly there's a whole new set of goals that you might have to develop, activities, even sometimes friendships that have to be strengthened or, or, or created. And so those ways of restoring your life are also things that people have to learn. Do, do people sometimes try to fill the void with something else, alcohol, drugs, uh, whatever, insert addiction here? How does neuro, if that's true, then how, how can this be trained away or talk therapy? I'm trying to connect the dots with neurofeedback. Anybody can chime in. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, for myself, I would say that the death of a loved one, that experience of grief is often far more painful than people are expecting. Um, many of us are really taken off guard. And so we want to avoid feeling pain. That's an understandable uh, human motivation. And one of the ways that people do that sometimes is to numb themselves. And that can be through drugs or alcohol, the way you mentioned, but it can be through, you know, workaholism, or it can be through online gambling, or, you know, as you said, insert addiction here, anything that can sort of take us out of our mind or out of our body. Um, and the good news is that psychotherapy really can help people to address these things they might be trying to avoid. So on the one hand, it can teach us skills mm -hmm. to cope with some of those really strong emotions. How do I jump into that puddle of grief, but then how do I jump out of it again? And it can also help us by encouraging us and supporting us in, in exposing ourselves to things we don't want to tackle. How am I going to go through the closet? You know, how am I going to go through all those clothes that my loved one left behind? Or I don't want to go out to dinner with our couple friends. I'm just going to be sad the whole time. Well, there can be ways to address that avoidance and actually find out what is it like to go out to dinner now? And that there will be parts of that that'll be sad, but there will also be parts of it that'll be interesting or kind or uh, joyful or silly. And so when it's all of those things, the sadness wrapped in with those other positive emotions, that's what we think of as mental health. Not that grief goes away, but that it becomes a part of a rich tapestry of emotional experiences that people have. Well, I would just piggyback on that, I think, and that when you ask the, the question about neurofeedback, 
if the grief becomes really complicated or it's, it turns into something else, we can easily do neurofeedback with them. So for me, if it's chronic, um, because grief is good for us. I mean, we've got to grieve, but I think we have to, if it becomes chronic, and we only see the world that way, then neurofeedback can really help. And we know we can help the person, I think in several ways. Of course, you know me, I love 19 channel EG, so I'd love to see a 19 channel EG and, um, and see, you know, where there's too much theta, too much alpha, and I can pretty much guarantee you I know where it is. So we could do amplitude training, or we could do communication training between hemispheres or back and forth. Um, so it depends on what, it depends on the person. And everybody, as I know, Ray Francis is going to talk to us about it. Everybody does this differently. So, so Dr. Lori, um, where, where would you predict the dysregulation to be? And I know that's a generalized question, but um, where would you first start throwing darts? Well, I think there's some big amygdala problems. I think there's some parietal problems, but I'm not the expert on this. Please talk. Mary Frances, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because I don't know that neurofeedback has been tried very much in grieving. And, and I think, as you say, once it becomes chronic, when we get those entrenched patterns uh, in our brain, then I think intervention is really useful. You know, what we know from um, neuroimaging work with grieving people, so not intervention, but just sort of the basic science is that there are a lot of parts of the brain that have to do with emotion regulation. So subgenual anterior cingulate that we see is can be problematic also in depression. Um, we see uh, memory areas that are important, but that doesn't seem to be a problem. So we see that posterior cingulate areas um, that are sort of autobiographical memory, they're very much activated when people are thinking about a loved one who's died, but that's true for everyone. It doesn't mean that it's problematic. It just means that's part of the brain that's supporting um, our experience of grief. Um, what does become problematic, which I think is fascinating, is this tiny little area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. It's part of the reward network. Well, that's the part that's motivating us, that is enabling us to yearn for the loved one. And so that same region shows up in lots of different yearning. We think of craving, for example, nucleus accumbens shows up in craving as well. And what seems to be the difference is that people who have adapted to the fact that their loved one has died, who really, you know, found ways to restore their lives, when they're thinking of a loved one, they're having all sorts of emotions, right? Bittersweet emotions and memories and so forth. But there's nothing about that experience where they are expecting the loved one again. And it seems that in people who are having difficulty adjusting, there is still sort of this expectation, this yearning for them to be back in a way that is just different and not through any fault of their own. Uh, yeah. It's not that they've you know, chosen to have this difficult experience of grieving, but it does seem that there's something different about the way the brain is, is reacting and, and, um, and not showing the same change over time that we see in people who have a more typical grieving response. Is it because grief is a, a process and 
people that just keep processing the record just keep spinning in the same spot and you got to kind of nudge them to get to the to the next level I think, uh, you know, I make this distinction between grief and grieving, which I think people, some people find really helpful. So grief is, you know, in the moment, right? That, that wave of grief that takes you over with all the thoughts and feelings and, and then grieving is a process just as you described, right? It's the way that grief changes over time. That doesn't necessarily mean it goes away, right? So, you know, at Christmas time, when I go into the store and I see that particular, you know, chocolate peppermint cookie that my dad and I used to eat boxes of at Christmas. I have a wave of grief in that moment, even though it's been years. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with my grieving. It doesn't mean I've been suppressing or avoiding or anything. It's just that in that moment, I'm aware of the loss. And so I feel grief. And so I think the grieving as you say, kind of goes on and on in that we keep learning new ways that this loss affects us. Um, so, you know, when my sister got married last fall, our parents weren't there to see it. That was a different experience of grief than we had had previously. And so those changes, that understanding um, continues on. And maybe the analogy that can be helpful is, you know, I so people say, you know, when will I be over this, the death of my loved one? I say, you know, well, when did you get over your wedding day? <laughs> right? Because that's not really a question that makes any sense. It's something that changed you forever. And so, you know, the death of a loved one is the same thing. It changes who you are and how you are in the world and what you understand life is about. And that doesn't really go away. I also wonder... I know we're going to address this at the Super Brain Summit, but um, I think level of attachment plays such a huge role. I think. Yeah. Some of the grief is not healthy, but, you know, if you're deeply attached to something or someone, this grief is going to be a very different story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of that in two ways. There's sort of how much do you overlap with this person, right? You think of... You know, when um, Joan Didion's husband died, they obviously lived together, but they also worked together. They were in the same, you know, they were both writers. Their lives had huge overlap. And she so beautifully wrote about that in the book, The Year of Magical Thinking. Um, and so I think in the one sense, there's sort of how much of a role is that person play in my life, but in my identity. But the other piece about attachment that I think is important is if you are already a person who, you know, for whatever reason in this world is very anxious about your relationships, that can make it harder than when a relationship ends, when the person dies. So, you know, if we, we see that if you were the kid who had separation anxiety in kindergarten, there's probably something different about the way you're processing relationships. And so then the death of that person can really affect you in a unique kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very excited about hearing more about attachment as well. I think that'll be really fun. I, I often talk about to the, I think this is back, Pete, to your question about types of grieving though. And I think there's that intuitive place that we just, we feel it. And then there's this piece of action, like instrumental grieving where you could just, you got, you might want to do something. And sometimes people appreciate doing something. Just little things such as 
uh, Mary France was talking about dinner or Christmas time and cookies. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll set my mother's favorite tableware out and I don't put any places. I'm going to sound a little macabre, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't put anybody in those chairs, but they're there. And yeah. there is. And so you have to really know your own spiritual beliefs too. And um, there's so many instrumental things you can do to help you with that. Absolutely. So idea so of turning it, turning it into an honor. I want to honor this person somehow. Turn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neurosciences NeuroGuide workshops in Madeira Beach, Florida. They're led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. Earn up to 16 CEU hours. Sign up now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. Join us at the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University Center for Collaborative Brain Research. It's featuring speaker Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Our Love and Loss. If you want to get more information regarding registration, contact Gwen Huarter. She's at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at bradley.edu or call her at 309-677-3900. If you want more information regarding programming, you can contact Dr. Lori Russell Chapin herself at 309-677-3186 or email lar at bradley.edu. And uh, anyway... So, so to what our whistle for the book, uh, Mary Francis? I'm grieving. I need uh, uh, 200 pages. What are the pages that I need to open up and get to, and just give me some? Qu- it's like taking an aspirin. I, I, I need to take a pill to fix it. You know, right away. What can I go to the book? What are you going to tell me in the book, Mary Francis? How, how do I? What's the first step in dealing? Are there, are there stages? What can you tell me? You know, I think this is going to sound terrible. You're not going to like this, but advice is often not the way that grieving people understand their experience, right? So I can lend you my glasses. I can lend you 200 pages of my glasses and say, these are some things you may not have focused on before. You might find those useful as you reflect on your own life, but my glasses are probably not the right prescription for you. Having said that, One of the things that people seem to resonate with a lot that I talk about in the book is what we call the would have, should have, could have thoughts. And so those are the thoughts that go round and round and round and round in your head and you can't stop having them about, uh, what if I would have gotten them to the hospital sooner? The doctor should have run that other test. You know, if only they could have known that the train was going to be late. All of those stories that go round and round And the trouble with those stories, when you think about it, is that each of those stories actually ends with, and then my loved one lived. But the reality is that your loved one didn't live. And so the trouble with some of those thoughts is they have no answer. There Mm -hmm. is no parallel universe where we can figure out what would have happened. And instead of living in the present reality, we sometimes get stuck in our head. And what that means is we're not able to, you know, fully engage with our grandkid who's trying to tell us some ridiculous story about what happened to the monster in the backyard. 
uh, or or we don't even notice the beautiful smile that the barista gives us for no reason at all because we're stuck in our head. And so sometimes we have to think about not whether these thoughts are true or not, but whether they're helpful. And so if we come to recognize, you know, I get stuck in these thoughts and it's not helping me, then figuring out ways to get out of our head, whether that's going for a walk or going for a run or talking to a friend or, uh, you know, any sort of thing to get you out of your head can sometimes be helpful. And, and tools, I imagine, for, you know, you're going to let yourself be in reality. Now you're facing the the this you know the the sadness head on and hopefully you have some tools for dealing with that because I imagine that hiding not hiding but being in the past and looking for the you know the exit door like oh that was just a dream you know that's you know some some coping to to a degree but you know if if you get someone to stop doing that okay let's get present let's look at you know the empty closet and the empty drawer and the, the empty side of the bed and things like that um then hopefully, yeah, that there, there's some uh, tool to to survive through that. You know, it's so interesting. People often find that the avoidance took up much more energy than actually That's dealing amazing. with the painful part. Yeah. And so they'll sometimes say, you know, I thought if I started crying, I would just never stop. But that didn't happen. Or I spend all this energy sort of trying to not think about it. And it turns out thinking about it isn't so bad. Um, and, and there are specific skills we can learn as well. We can learn how to comfort ourselves or ask for comforting. Um, those can be really important when you're facing the painful part. Support from our, our friends and loved ones is really important when we're grieving. Um, but, but you're right. It is ironically, you know, the brain is there to help us out. And if we're avoiding experiences, the brain can't learn how to live now in a good, helpful, joyful way. You know, you're talking about this rumination, new normal. Sorry. Well, the new normal. You, you, yeah. You, you talk about ruminations. Is it like you want to feel like you have some control over it, right? And for the people that have a problem letting go, is that a big part of it from the non-psychologist here? <laughs> you know, I think that at some theoretical level, we could say when you're feeling really guilty, sometimes that guilt at least means that even if you did it wrong, that there was it was a controllable situation, right? That it could have turned out differently. Where the reality of being a human being, we know is that accidents happen and bad things happen. And sometimes for no reason at all. And so at some theoretical level, you could say the feeling of being guilty, of feeling guilty is still about trying to control sort of the situation. I will tell it if you're, I'd, I'd say that if you're talking to a grieving people, a person, that isn't really going to help them <laughs> to say, you know, if you could just let go of control, then you would feel better. It's not really how it works. It's much more about supporting them. And, and it's not about cheering them up. It's about being with them as they figure out how to deal with, oh my God, I'm a person who has rumination now. Okay, how do I deal with that? And I'm I'm a powerless person. Like you can get into all the depths of that, right? Like I, I really don't have any control. I could have took, took them five minutes sooner yeah. to the ER and they probably would have passed anyway. And 
And so now we're getting into some faith-based stuff, right? As far as, oh boy, there's something bigger than me, you know, that, that's that's running the show here. And, and how do I cope with that now? It often... Those are good things, Laura, I think, for people to articulate for them. You know, what are what are your beliefs around that? That's and, right. And yours. Regardless of what your beliefs are, having a belief system can be very helpful for people. And so, you know, a death often shakes up. Either we haven't thought about it very much or we've thought about it. And now this experience really sort of changes how we think. And so that takes time, that takes attention. Often that takes talking to other people, right? Whether that's reading a book about different philosophies on life or whether that's talking to a pastor or your grandma, um, you know, how did you address these questions? But these are really important questions about life and death. And we don't pause to really consider those very often on, you know, Instagram and Facebook. And so these are moments in our life where we really end up pausing and trying to figure out what we think is happening. You know, I think I was listening to you talk to, talk about, we need to talk to people about these things, but we also need to remember the person who's perhaps dying. And I find this so interesting. Um, The last two loved ones have passed away in my life. No. People around them would say, don't talk to them about death and dying. Because they know what I do for a living, right? Don't do not do that. So, and I just, I'm looking at them like, really? But anyway, um, so I'd go talk to these people by themselves. And I said, well, what do you guys want? What do you want to work on today? Or what do you want to talk about? Or what do you want to watch? They always say the same thing. I want to talk to you about dying. Because they're dying and they want someone to listen to them. But I, it's just like, this is something we're all going to do. And we don't want to talk about it? Yeah. This just makes no sense. Right? I mean, imagine sending women into labor without ever having talked about what's going to happen. It's going to happen anyway. We might as well know what the possibilities are. How does that go? What is that like? And no, it's not going to be exactly the same as their experience, but at least it gives them some background and makes them think, well, other people have gone through this before me. I think our death education could... Uh, do some serious uh, reboot, right? You could have Lamaze classes essentially for end of life. Or whatever your beliefs are, right? Yes. So I was telling Laura and Pete that at Christmas time, I missed all of Christmas, like the whole thing, because I, my lungs gave out. <clears throat> and, um, and of course that is a trip in itself. So I was put on a respirator and a ventilator and all that jazz. But when I finally came to, and I'm so grateful I did, my son who is got quite a faith-based He's a faith-based Christian and he he's very believes very much in that. He sat right down next side of me and he said, Mom, did you see God? And he said, Oh mom, is that too soon for me to ask you that? <laughs> so precious though. It was like, is it too soon, Mom? Because you could just tell he wanted to know, you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, people want to talk about it. Yes, they do. Even undergraduates, like you said, Lori, I also teach a psychology of death and loss class. And I'm always amazed. 150 students sign up to talk about death and loss for a semester. And there's always a wait list. And I think 
because we're all going to die and, and you're also good at what you do. That's the other thing. But um. <laughs> well, I do think that, you know, young people, they want to understand what is life about? Yeah. What is happening here? Yeah. How do I make sense of this? How do I set goals and what are my values and how does that all interact? And, you know, at the end of the course, often we talk about the fact that life without death would have a lot less meaning, right? It's a very mm -hmm. precious time that we're given and we don't know how long it is, but if we really engage in it, that's a very different process than sort of letting it slip by. So one of the things that we always talk about in our class too is this idea of writing your own grief story. I think it's so fascinating because people say, well, I haven't had anybody die yet. And I said, because I, I start the class telling people, unfortunately, we're all experts in this already. We all, been, all of us have experienced grief and loss of some sort, right? Maybe they haven't done a, a dying of a loved one yet. So I make them do this kind of a log. And sure enough, if they talk about all the losses in their life, we do have skill sets around this, but they've never talked about it in a, in a group or cohesive enough to talk about it and make some, I think, good plans of it. And once they do that, then it's like, okay, that makes some sense. And then they can write their story. Yeah. It's just powerful. So I'm, I'm ecstatic that you're coming. And I'm so looking forward to it. And, and where is she going, Dr. Lori? She's going to Peoria, Illinois, in person. I know, I know Mary Frances is just excited to go to Peoria, Illinois. I and, am. And, um, and then we're going to take you to Bradley. We're going to the Alumni Center. And, and Laura Jansen, Dr. Jansen mentioned that. So. so for the seventh annual Super Brain, not Brain Summit, Super Brain you know, this, this Summit. This is a Super Brain Summit. So yeah. I hear there's like a really big brain there. Is that true? <laughs> we do have a brain cave that um, comes. You've probably seen this, right, Francis? But um, it's just through a three D three D goggles, and you can walk Whoa. through the brain and coolest thing ever. But um, that sounds awesome. It is pretty awesome. Trippy. But yeah, we're, we're very excited about it. Um, Laura's coming. Doctor Jansen's coming. So Laura, she's, yep. she's about three well, hours away, Laura. Yeah, about three hours. Yeah, I'm uh, near Chicago and Peoria's. Yeah, about two and a half, three hours oh. south, central okay. Illinois. Yeah, join us. Laura's well, one of our. We give well, a, a we give a, we give out um, alumni event awards every year, and I don't remember the year, but Laura was one of our award winners. Mm -hmm. So that was very nice as well. Yes, yes. You, yeah, no. you should have you should have it on the wall there, Dr. Laura. Yes, you should. I, it is at, in my office. So I'm in my okay, basement because I'm at home today. But when I'm at work, it's front and center. That's for sure. I'm very proud of it. Very proud of Bradley and great education. And, you know, it, it, I, I say this all the time. If they had a doctorate program down there, I'd still be there. And, and, and Mary Frances is a homie. Northwestern. That's right. Oh, I, I went to Northwestern that. in Chicago, just up the road. Okay. Oh, then you know, then you know the neighborhood. Okay. Absolutely. Love yeah, my know, time in Chicago. Yeah, that's why you, you're in Arizona. You're no <laughs> dummy. <laughs> well, I grew up in Montana. So between Montana and Chicago. All right. Big sky. Big sky. Uh-huh. Katie Couric gave you a nice review. Yeah, that was very cool. Good. You get some big wigs. Sharon Salzberg. Yeah. 
George. Lovely people. Bonana. Mm-hmm. You get a, a lot of uh, uh, interesting people commenting yeah. and reading about this. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be funny here, but uh, morticians should, uh, right? I actually speak, I actually spoke to the Arizona Funeral Association last summer. Yeah. You know, they deal with it all the time. And it's amazing, you know, veterinarians. Um, we do yeah. an education piece for veterinarians, um, family lawyers, family estate law. It's all about grief, right? Oh, divorce lawyers. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's, you know, it impacts so many professions. Wow. Mary Francis, how, how do we get a hold of your book? You know, the book is sold everywhere, uh, online and at your favorite local bookstore. Um, there's also uh, an ebook version and an audiobook version uh, for people who might prefer that. And it's even in many libraries. However, however, yes, yes if you come to the Super Brain Summit in your registration, if you come to Bradley, we will give you, a, she doesn't know this yet, a signed copy oh. of her book with your registration. So I think the better way to get it is to come see her in person or video stream. I guess I'll do that. But, uh, and then she'll sign a copy for you and, and you get a free copy of her book with your registration. Sold. I'm going. Sold. All right. Oh. And if you already have a copy, I'll sign it for someone else. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Even better. Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, thank you for coming on the Neuro Noodle Podcast. Dr. Laura Jansen's thank you. And of course, Dr. Lloyd Russell Chapin. Say hi. The podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience NeuroGuide workshops in Madeira Beach, Florida, led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen NG hyphen workshops. Earn up to 16 CEU hours now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen NG hyphen workshops. Mind Media, get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from MindMedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit MindMedia.com now. Join us at the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University Center for Collaborative Brain Research. It's featuring speaker Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Our Love and Loss. If you want to get more information regarding registration, contact Gwen O'Arter. She's at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at bradley.edu or call her at 309-677-3900. If you want more information regarding programming, you can contact Dr. Lori Russell Chapin herself at 309-677-3186 or email lar at bradley.edu. 